Side Hustle Show 346, The Con of the Side Hustle, Beanie Babies, Affiliate Marketing, and more. This is 20 Questions with Nick. What's up? What's up, Nick? Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because financial independence, it's worth working for. It's time for another round of 20 Questions with Nick. These are some of my favorite episodes to put together where I dive into the listener mailbag from the last few months and I try and pull out some questions I thought were interesting, challenging, applicable, or otherwise noteworthy, and attempt to answer those for you on air. This is the eighth installment of this series, so if you find you like this format, I encourage you to check out the past editions as well. You'll be able to find the show notes and links to all the resources mentioned in this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A8. And I want to dive right into it today with a response to the opinion piece that was published in the New York Times back in April called The Con of the Side Hustle, and the article carried the subtitle, The language portraying second jobs as liberating or glamorous masks the reality of the insecure working lives of many Americans. The author of this opinion piece was Miss Alyssa Court. She's also the author of the book called Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. So I got a lot of emails and messages after that article came out. Thank you for sending that to me. And I think that was in part because Side Hustle Nation was mentioned in it. She said, quote, commercial websites like Side Hustle Nation extol the joy of the new unstable labor, although its payoff actually arrives only for a few. As Nick Loper, the site's chief side hustler writes, my escape route was a side hustle business I built in my spare time, and you can do it too, end quote. And I still stand by that 100%. Here's another segment that kind of summarizes the point of this article. Nevertheless, this nouveau moonlighting continues to be exalted as cool, empowering, or freeing. This mantra is false. Side hustles are not simply a new version of working as a wage slave so that we can do what we love in our off hours. Instead, far more often, people take on a second or third side hustle because of wage stagnation or low pay at their full-time jobs. Now, I think the author gets a lot of things right in this piece, especially as it relates to people side hustling out of necessity and as it relates to people side hustling in low paying hours for dollars, gig economy types of work. As our costs of education, housing and healthcare have gone through the roof, real wages over the last 30 years have not kept pace. That's just a fact. When you're working 16 hours a day just to subsist, I don't think anyone would call that cool, empowering or freeing. What the author misses, and I think this is really important, is the entrepreneurial upside of all of this. If it wasn't for my business, I'd still be working a nine to five, wondering what life could have been. And probably hundreds or even thousands of listeners at this point are in the same boat. The article paints this dreary picture of overworked, broke, and broken people, which is only partially true, and I'm not sure encompasses the side hustle mindset of most people who undertake them. The article misses the people who are building businesses out of choice, proactively. For me, side hustles are rooted in entrepreneurship. That's why they're not called second or third jobs. There is something empowering about building an income stream you have control over and eventually may decouple your earning power from the hours you put in. This isn't rise and grind, hustle 24-7, never sleep. This is control what you can control and build something you care about that helps other people and that pays you. I've seen it firsthand from so many stories. Yes, it takes a ton of work. Yes, it's hard. Yes, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. Yes, you're going to have to learn as you go. 
just like anything else worth doing. But what do you think? Did you read that article? I'll link it up for you in the show notes for this episode at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A8. Question number two comes from Andy, who writes in, a few months back, you talked on your podcast about setting up an Alexa skill. I wanted to check in and see how that was going. Is it exceeding expectations, meeting them, or underperforming? I'm asking because I have a local trivia business, and I'm trying to figure out if it would be a good fit for an Alexa audio skill. Would love to hear about your experience and how it's working for you. So Andy, the results have been a little underwhelming so far. I'm reaching around 200 people a day through the money-making minute on Alexa. You can ask Alexa to enable the money-making minute if you want to check it out. 200 people a day, which is cool, but not anywhere close to my goal of reaching 1,000 people a day by the end of April. So we're already a couple months past that. I'm torn between pulling the plug and then on the other hand, letting it continue to grow because it is growing. And looking back, if I'd bailed on the podcast after just a few months of doing it, like that would have been a huge mistake. So it is growing, but not exactly in hockey stick fashion, though I am seeing a little bit of an accelerated pace lately. On the plus side, it's super batchable, but it still takes a day to script, record, and schedule out a month's worth of content. And honestly, I'm a little worried about running out of ideas. Again, this is money-making ideas every day. They go quick at five days a week. So we'll see where it goes. Probably going to commit to doing it through the end of the year and see where we're at. Question three comes from Eric. He says, hey, listen to your podcast every Thursday. Thank you for doing it. My question is, I've been interviewing people for articles on my website for close to a year. I record the conversation, so I have some good audio. I'm thinking about moving up to the next level and trying to turn one into a podcast. You say that you send your audio out to get edited. Who do you use for that? And how do you edit out the stuff that you don't want? The last interview I had, the guy said, hey, don't print that part. What do I do about that stuff? So Eric, I use a editing service called Podcast Fast Track. You heard Kerry Green on a bonus episode of the Side Hustle Show a couple months ago where he was interviewing me. So it's actually his company that does the editing. And normally what I'll do is I'll get the raw audio transcribed with a service called sonics.ai, S-O-N-I-X.ai. It's one of these AI, artificial intelligence transcription services, which means it's not perfect, but it is affordable. And how I use that is to highlight the sections I want the editor to trim. Plus, it gives me a visual text document where I can say, okay, this is where I want to start the interview. This is a section that went off the rails. We can cut that out. And then I'll pass that over to him and say, hey, working magic, rear regular audio editing magic on the rest of the interview and trim these specific sections. Question four comes in from Wendy, who says, I never really considered blogging for income until now. I have a business name in mind. I checked it out on GoDaddy and it says it's available. But does claiming a domain name automatically trademark the name as yours so nobody else can use it in any way? Obviously, preventing others from stealing your name and ideas is important. So Wendy, here's my understanding of this. Registering the domain name does not automatically trademark the business but can definitely help your trademark application should you choose to apply for one down the road. I should note that I attempted to trademark Side Hustle Nation a couple years ago and actually had my application denied because it was confusingly similar or too similar to another trademark that had been registered a few months before I started. Now for a blog, a trademark is probably only worth it to the extent you have the budget and stomach and willingness to pursue defending it, which I understand can be quite expensive. But definitely recommend 
registering that domain name, claiming it as yours, and that's a great first step in making your claim online. Question five comes from Aaron. Oh, this is a good one. He says, anytime a member brings up network marketing sales as a side hustle in the Facebook group, sidehustlenation.com slash FB, if you're not a member, it seems like the claws come out from a number of different members. Why do you think that is? And on a personal note, do you have any thoughts or perspectives on network marketing as a side hustle? So Aaron, this is a topic I know we've covered in the past. I think the claws come out for a variety of reasons. It could be a bad personal experience. It could be getting sold to by friends or having to sell to them. And it could just be a failure rate that far exceeds other business models. There was a piece on network marketing or, or multi-level marketing on last week tonight by, with John Oliver a few years ago, which I think is worth checking out. So my friend Kelly is a Beachbody rep, and she's pretty much the only person I know who's made it work. We recorded an episode in 2014, if you want to go check it out. But she's an MBA, and she's a former college athlete. So like, she had a lot of things working in her favor, and it still has worked exceptionally hard to, to make this thing into a sustainable business. Now, the balance smb.com reports 99% failure rates for network marketing opportunities. These are the kind of things, if you're not familiar, where that friend you haven't heard from in years suddenly wants to sell you um, essential oils or jewelry or pots and pans or CBD oil. Now, I'm not saying that all of these network marketing or direct sales companies are scams because I don't, I don't believe that's true. The failure rates for other business models can be pretty high too. And I've obviously had my share of those over the years too. But with the odds of success so low, like what's, what's the attraction? What makes every new person who signs on think they're going to be different from everybody who's gone before them? Well, I think there are a few reasons for that. Number one, the companies do an excellent job selling the dream. Look, you can work from home. You can be your own boss. You can promote a product that you love. Second, it's a business in a box. It's a system, which is appealing not to have to create something entirely from scratch. And third, the commitment or, or barrier to entry and startup costs are usually very low. So it's easy to get people on board and kind of drinking the Kool-Aid in that way. But the biggest challenge with network marketing is just that. It's your network. Unless you have a systematic way to keep that network, that audience of buyers growing, you're dead in the water. You're dead before you even get started. And since most people who sign up for these aren't natural marketers or salespeople, that's a tough road. When you eventually tap out your audience of warm contacts, your business stalls out and, and you give up. Beyond that, you're only making a percentage of each sale and the product has to be marked up enough to share profit with your upline and the company itself, which can make commodity type products more expensive, makes them harder to sell. A lot of these items are one-off purchases, which means you have no recurring income. You risk damaging personal relationships, trying to pitch someone else's product. A lot of them are based on fad products that the demand may go down over time. And then you're, you're married to a specific solution instead of addressing the larger problem. And remember the advice from Greg Hickman on the podcast was to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. So that's my take on why the clause might come out in Facebook groups as it relates to network marketing. I think people can make it work. Obviously, some people are making it work, but it's a very, very small minority who managed to have success in that space. So what can you do instead? Obviously, tons of ideas in the podcast archives, in the sidehustlenation.com blog archives. Really think about what problem can you go out there and solve? Not necessarily some company's proposed solution, but what problem do you actually care about? Do you have the expertise, knowledge, 
to go out there and solve for people. I think that may be a more sustainable and, you know, you're still going to see failure rates, of course. Like in any business, there's there's risk involved, but hopefully not as high as, as some of that have been documented in the MLM or, or network marketing world. Question six comes in from actually multiple people have asked variations of this one, and that's, do I have to pay taxes on that? The short answer is yes, probably. <laughs> I'm not an accountant, and honestly, it doesn't matter. And what I mean by that is make sure you're operating within the law. But what I mean by it doesn't matter is I think you're asking the wrong question. Instead of worrying if you're going to get 1099 for a certain side hustle, ask yourself if you're going to be better off having taken action. Even if you do have to pay taxes, you're still coming out ahead. There's no such thing as a 110% marginal tax bracket. One funny note came in from a guy who doubled his money on a real estate rehab flip. And then he paid 30% to capital gains and was bent out of shape about it. Like his accountant was like, stop giving your money away. So your alternative was to not sell it and make $0? I did not understand the complaint there. Now, with certain real estate deals, you can avoid or at least defer some of those taxes through a 1031 exchange. At least that's my rudimentary understanding of it. But death and taxes, those were Ben Franklin's two certainties in life, right? I understand I'm going to owe taxes on what I earn, but that doesn't stop me from pursuing earning. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes, T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Question seven comes from Peggy. How do you not lose interest in a hobby you're working to make money on? I went through your blog, couldn't find anything that speaks to keeping the spark alive. 
I enjoy building apps, and I've gone through a few of your posts on how to turn that into a side hustle. The issue I'm facing now is I'm starting to lose interest. What advice do you have for me? So Peggy, first of all, excited to hear that you're taking action. A couple of things come to mind. The first is to kind of set up these sprint goals, maybe a four-week challenge to yourself. Okay, I'm going to get this done. Or I'm going to hit this milestone in that time. And that way you're kind of racing against yourself. Like, okay, now I have a deadline instead of this kind of opaque goal of like, oh, I'm going to launch an app sometime this year, right? So that kind of makes it a little more real, kind of like signing up for a, a 10K, right? At the end of the month, okay, I better start trading for that. The other thing that has come up on the podcast is to think of new challenges that could be growth in development, in marketing, in hiring. There's always something else to learn. And, and for me personally, that has become kind of motivating. That always keeps the spark alive. Like what else? I'm always I'm learning new stuff every day, which is really cool. One other thing that I've seen work for both myself and other people is to kind of set up peer meetings. These don't have to be anything like a formal mastermind group or accountability partnership. It just could, could be like a coffee lunch or a coffee meeting, but like meeting with other people who are kind of in the same space, not necessarily other app developers, but other entrepreneurs who are kind of at the same level of the game. I feel like that has helped me work through <laughs> some sticking points. Those conversations spark different ideas and can be really powerful. If you're really feeling burnout, it's totally okay to take a break. Last summer took five or six weeks off, which was awesome. It was like the return of summer break, like from being a kid. And I found that was a really cool, creative reset. And so when I came back to the work in August, I was like ready to go. And it was a really productive time for me. And the final thing to note is it's okay to shut things down if they're not serving you. If you come to dread the work, that's a sign that maybe you should not keep doing it. The last thing you need is, is a second job that you hate, that you come to dread. So make sure that your hobby, your side hustle is, is something that interests you for sure, or, or at least excites you to, to keep going. There's going to be downsides or there's going to be times that are a little more challenging to work through. But if that goes on for, for months and months and years, probably not a good sign. Question eight comes from Barbara. Are you planning to update your books? There's one called the website checklist and the other about virtual assistants. I was just looking on Amazon and both are more than five years old. So I don't have any near-term plans to update the website checklist, which I believe was published in 2013. The last VA book update was in 2016, but Amazon doesn't always update the publish date. Both are probably due for a refresh, the website checklist more so, but neither are critical pieces of content for my business today, nor do they drive a ton of revenue. So instead, I'm focusing on content for the podcast, content for the blog, and creating a new course product. And we'll hear, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a moment. Question nine comes from George. He says, thanks for the great content as always. The question I have for you is, can you point me in the right direction for the best zero investment business opportunities? My first thought is Amazon or affiliate marketing. So George, awesome question. Obviously, I love to keep startup costs low just to minimize downside risk. Affiliate marketing can be inexpensive to start, but not free. You're still going to need a website and hosting in most cases. As far as zero startup cost businesses, you're probably looking at freelancing or consulting, going out there and solving problems for other businesses. We've seen some creative examples of people making this work in real estate, particularly wholesaling, getting a distressed property under contract and then flipping it to another buyer. But check out sidehustlenation.com slash ideas 
for more inspiration. There's often a small startup cost involved with a lot of side hustles, but you really shouldn't have to break the bank. Questions 10 and 11 come from Mark, two-part question. He asks, we're building a blog right now. We're going to go live in about a month. When is the right time to begin adding affiliate links? Do we need to wait to monetize the site until we have a certain number of page views or followers? And the second question, somewhat related, is when should we go live? How much content needs to be written before publishing? We've got an initial list of about 30 blog topics, and we've got about a fifth of those written so far. Should we wait until we have more, or should we just go live now? Mark, also excited to hear that you're taking action. Related to the first question, I think you can start adding affiliate links from day one. The only challenge there is some advertisers who approve publishers manually, publishers being bloggers and website owners, they might want to see a site with some content on it first. So if you get a rejection from those advertisers, you can usually respond to the affiliate manager. You kind of explain the resource that you plan to build, or you can just kind of, you know, put a note in your calendar to circle back on it in in a few months. Now, regarding when to hit publish, the advantage of publishing sooner rather than later is it starts the clock of Google indexing your material. So if it were me, I'd get it out there. If you have four or five posts, I'd say that's a strong enough foundation so that if someone does land on the site for the first time and they want to see what else you've got, they're not thinking, all right, this is all these guys have. They're not brand new. So it looks like you have a little bit of a foundation of content. And so I'd go ahead and get it out there. Question 12 comes in from Doug, who says, I saw you promoted and joined the Teachable Challenge to create an online course this summer. Excited to see what you come up with, but curious, what attracted you to Teachable versus the other online course hosting options? And Doug's right. Teachable is definitely not the only game in town. In the past, I've used Udemy. I've used YouTube to host free courses. I've used kind of a a convoluted setup with a membership plugin and Wistia video hosting. And of course, we've heard from friends and guests using ClickFunnels, which is probably a little more robust and, and costs a little bit more. And some other friends are also on Thinkific as another course hosting platform. But I was attracted to Teachable for a lot of reasons. I think it's reasonably priced. It has the functionality I was looking for. And there's safety in numbers. Of all my friends who have online courses, I'd say the majority of them are on Teachable. And there's also the relationship factor, which I think is worth something. I first met Anker, the founder, back in 2015, before it was even called Teachable. He was a guest on the podcast. Teachable was one of the first official sponsors of the show. That stuff definitely counts. The course idea I've been outlining is geared toward helping people discover that first side hustle, that thing you can take action on and start to see some results. Kind of a side hustle 101 for freelancing, consulting, or content-based businesses, working through the idea generation phases, validation, and marketing to get your first customers, get your first sales. I should have some beta students going through it now to help uh, refine the content, but if you want to be the first to hear about its broader launch, you can punch in your email at sidehustlenation.com slash hustle101. Question 13 is from Israel, who says, big fan, I love the show. Quick question, I've got about 50 beanie babies, and three of them are Valentino. It seems like those are the most valuable. Should I put them up on eBay, Etsy, auction? What are your thoughts? So I had to look these up. A Valentino in certain rare condition could be like $1,000 or some of them are even tens of thousands of dollars. So Israel, I think it depends on if the price you think you can get for them is worth it for you. 
if they're otherwise collecting dust and you don't see them appreciating considerably in the future, it might be time to part ways. That's kind of the mentality that we've used with decluttering a bunch of stuff around this house. And Beanie Babies are kind of like in this weird borderline collector's item where, hey, the value might go up, the value might go down. And my, admittedly, my knowledge of Beanie Baby futures is pretty much non-existent. But if they're taking up space and you could use the cash and you don't see them doubling in value over the next 10 years, which, you know, would be a typical stock market return, might as well part ways. Question 14 comes from Annika, who asks, when starting out your business, what one habit contributed most to your success? So Annika, the habit that is top of mind is a commitment to making daily progress, no matter how small. I think if you do that, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Question 15 comes from Mark. How do you differentiate your content between the blog posts and the newsletter so your followers feel like the newsletter is something different that's worth signing up for? That is an excellent question mark. So for me, I try and structure the welcome sequences, the autoresponder sequences after somebody first joins to address a specific type of side hustle that person has shown interest. For example, if you opt in for something related to blogging, I'm going to send you a series of emails related to blogging. And there's even a a split in that path. of Do you already have a website? If you do, you know, send these messages. If you don't send these messages. So in active campaign, I've got eight or 10 of these set up, depending on what the person opts in for. And each is designed to walk someone new down a path versus what they might just see a small piece of it coming from a single blog post if they just landed on the on the single blog post on the site. Now, in my case, it's not necessarily that the content is different, but perhaps more uh, logically structured and presented. That's the hope anyways. But curious, if you have a different take on that, would love to hear it. SideHustleNation.com slash Q&A8. Question 16 is from Miles, who says, I'm thinking about trying merch by Amazon, but during the sign-up process, I'm a little hesitant with giving my checking account number and my social security number. What's your advice? So Miles, fortunately or unfortunately, that's how they're going to pay you. And of course, they're going to give a record of those payments to the IRS going back to, am I going to have to pay taxes on this? Yes, probably. I think you'll find that kind of information is often required on a lot of these types of platforms. And I I don't think Amazon is out to steal your identity. And besides, these tech companies already have (laughs) enough dirt on us. So I wouldn't stress about it too much. That's kind of your ticket to ride in a lot of cases. Four more questions coming up, including my 80-20 rules for maximizing effectiveness and my favorite affiliate programs. But first, this. If you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. 
Question 17 comes from Lisa. She says, how can I create a Google business page without showing my physical location? I work from home or on-site with clients, but don't want my address in Google. So Lisa, this is pretty cool. You do need to verify your physical address with Google to get a Google My Business local listing, but then you can select uh, service areas to define your location on Google Maps. You're going to check the box that says, yes, this business serves uh, customers at their location in the service areas and location settings on the page. And this is going to expand a form that's going to allow you to hide your physical address. Perfect for people if you don't want your address listed. Like, hey, I don't want people coming to my house. This is actually what my wife and her partner do for their photography business. It's a local business, but they don't need or want to show either of their addresses in that listing. Question 18 comes from Becky. She says, I've been trying to get into low content publishing on Amazon. I've created a simple journal to get my feet wet. I started setting up the product on Amazon and I'm getting stuck at the category selection. Nothing seems to match what I think the journal should be categorized as. Any suggestions? So Becky, awesome to see you taking action. If you're listening to this and missed the low content publishing episode, which was about selling print on demand notebooks and journals on Amazon, Definitely recommend checking that out. It was a really fun roundtable style show. That was episode 339. But categories on Amazon, this is kind of a weird thing. On the consumer facing site, Amazon has way more categories than they do in your KDP, Kindle Direct Publishing author dashboard. So when you're setting up your book, you're like, wait, why can't I select the category I see these other books in? The workaround is to pick something close. You get to pick two official categories when you're uploading your book. And then use the keywords field. I believe you're allowed seven keywords to unlock the more relevant categories. No guarantees on that, but I've seen it work. You can also do this within reason to select relevant, but potentially less competitive categories. Like don't pick Hungarian historical romance if that's not what your book is about. But you can see the sales rank of top books in certain categories in the overall Kindle store and compare the competitiveness of categories that way. So, for example, if the best-selling book in category A has a sales rank of 50,000 and the best-selling book in category B has a sales rank of 100,000, you know that you're going to have an easier shot of earning that bestseller badge in category B because you have to move fewer units to hit number one for what that's worth. <laughs> now, as you heard in the low-content publishing episode, this is definitely a shotgun volume type of business where you're going to have to publish a ton of different titles. So I probably wouldn't go through that level of research until you have something that's selling, then you can go back and optimize. Question 19 comes from Vincent. Curious how you've applied or are applying the 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle in utilizing your time to earn more income or working less. This rule, if you're not familiar, states that 80% of your results tend to come from 20% of your efforts. So as side hustlers and entrepreneurs, it naturally makes sense to double down on the 20% that's most effective. For me, that's been really studying the business over the last couple of years in my own work that goes into it to figure out where my hours are best spent. So currently, I spend a lot of time on podcast production, trying to make great radio every week. I have a lot of support surrounding that in the form of editing, like we talked about, transcribing, show notes, lead magnets, stuff like that, but still invest quite a bit in structuring episodes, vetting guests, coming up with compelling intros, hopefully compelling intros and takeaways. I don't know if there are any shortcuts to that, but it's an area that makes sense to invest in for me because it's such an important channel. And you listening in wouldn't expect anything less. 
The other area that's seen a lot of attention lately is SEO and affiliate income. As it stands right now, the two biggest pieces of the revenue pie for me are sponsorships on the show and affiliate income through the blog. So I've been paying more attention to that, creating content, updating and optimizing older posts, trying to find places to plug in relevant affiliate offers. And I'll just say this, it's not an immediate return on investment, but it is super rewarding in kind of a nerdy blogger way to create something you think is helpful and then to have it start ranking in Google. That's super exciting for me right now. And the rest of the 80-20 stuff has been uh, related to relying more on my team. Erin Chase from $5 Dinners introduced me to her rule of two a couple years ago. The rule of two states, if you find yourself doing the same task twice and you can create a process for that task, delegate it. Even if it's just 30 seconds, it doesn't have to be your job. Get it off your plate. So that's another thing I've been geeking out about lately. All those little tasks that don't individually take a ton of time, but do eat away at productivity and come with a certain task switching cost. I've been able to delegate a lot of those and have a bunch of cool Zapier, Zapier triggers to automate even those uh, delegation requests. I was using IFTTT, if this, then that for a long time, but a lot of my applets broke or stopped working. Zapier has been bulletproof so far, and you can test it out for free. I think your first five zaps are free. As an example of this, I have, like, what's a zap? As an example of this, I have it set up so when a file hits a certain folder in Dropbox, it triggers an email to my writer or to my assistant, like, hey, this is ready for you to do your part of the process. Very assembly line-like. Question 20 comes from Nick. What's the going rate for a proofreader slash editor? I've got about 20,000 words. What should I expect to pay? So Nick, you will find proofreaders between half a penny per word, up to two or three cents per word. So for a 20,000 word book, that would be between $100 at the very low end to $600 to proofread or edit. On the higher end of that spectrum, I'd expect more editing help, like structural suggestions, how does this flow, stuff like that. More like high-level reading between the lines almost for comprehension. And on that lower end, it would be more straight proofreading line editing type, like for typos and misspellings. One cool tool that has been around for years, but I've been playing with it more recently, is the free Hemingway writing app, HemingwayApp.com. You can paste in your emails or blog posts, and it'll give you immediate suggestions on how to make your writing easier to understand. It's pretty slick. And question 21, I guess we have 21 questions today. 21 questions with Nick. Bonus question comes from Matt. What's your favorite affiliate program? And Matt, that one's easy. You know, the one that helps your audience the most. If you're in a different niche, someone else's favorite affiliate programs probably aren't going to be super relevant. For me, Respondent has been doing well lately. That's a company that facilitates online and in-person consumer research studies. Abby Ashley's virtual assistant training course has been doing well. The credit card sign-up commissions have been doing well since last summer's freecreditcardcourse.com. I'm starting to see a little more activity from Active Campaign, which is cool, but it's always an ebb and flow. For example, Udemy was a top performer as an affiliate for a long time, but they cut my commission 70%. Thanks, guys. Another company that was doing well shut down their affiliate program entirely earlier this year. So that's the downside. It can be great, but you do have less control. And that's another reason I'm creating a product, a course of my own this summer to try and serve people in a different way and diversify a little bit as well. It's designed to help you finally get off the sidelines and into the game, following the frameworks I've used myself for idea generation 
and have picked up from over 300 guests at this point. If you want to be the first to know about it when it's available, just punch in your email at sidehustlenation.com slash hustle 101. Once again, notes and links for this episode are at sidehustlenation.com slash Q&A8. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.